Well, hello everybody. What's up, Fight Community? Today is June 7th, 2018, and this is Rafael Garcia back for episode 87 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. I want to say thank you, as always, for joining our show and listening to our content. You can be sure to catch everything that we produce if you just click the subscribe button and um, stay in tune with our YouTube channel. As always, you can go over to MMA Ratings Net to catch all the articles that myself, Schwan Humes, um, Adam Martin, and sometimes Michael Ford put together for your enjoyment. We're always talking about a lot of different things going on in the sport today, so you can catch that there. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, at MMA Ratings Net. As always, man, and thank you guys for taking your time, checking us out, uh, listening to what we're putting out there, and just enjoying us on this ride. It's been quite a while since we started this show, and as always, man, we thank you each and every night uh, for your support and joining us every Thursday. we got a hell of a lot to talk about, because this is a pretty big uh, pretty big week, and I'm not going to front, man. I am excited uh, about this week in mixed martial arts, even for the PFL card. Uh, tonight we got so much to really kind of look at and I had an agenda put together and I had some news um, That I wanted to start with but you know as I sit here and look at it I think I want to jump right into This weekend's card. I mean that is basically the end-all be-all because There's a hell of any hell of a fight card this weekend. I was so debating with someone on Twitter today about whether or not it's a um, it's a big fight, and I think definitely easily figure this is the biggest fight of 2018. So let's go ahead and let's jump right into that. Maybe we'll come back to some news later on and talk about some of that stuff. But I want to first and foremost jump right into the conversation around uh, UFC 225, which is scheduled for this Saturday. And it will be brought to us from, I have absolutely no idea where the hell this event is going down. Is it Vegas? California? Chicago? Yeah, that's right. Fuck Chicago. Forgot. I forgot all about CM Punk. But yes, this is um, in Chicago and it features two title fights. At the top of the docket, we have Robert Whitaker and Yoel Romero with the co-main event being Rafael Dos Anjos versus Colby Covington, the middleweight and welterweight titles are up for grabs. And I want to start there, but when you start there, that's just not where the conversation ends. I mean, you have this fight. You have Holly Holm, Megan Anderson, Andre Arlasi versus Taya uh, Tuivasa. I mean, you got CM Punk, Mike Jackson, Overeem Blades, Gadelia Esparza, Lamas Mirzabetic. Um, you have Evans on Rashad Evans on his card, Joseph Benavidez, Sergio Pettis, Clay Guida, and Charles Oliveira. This card is definitely stacked, and there's a lot to kind of talk about here. And we're not going to, even if Schwan does join me, we're not going to break down every single fight. But there are some storylines that you definitely want to hit on anytime you talk about this card. And first and foremost, we got to look at the main event. Even though this fight isn't getting as much attention as I feel like it should, there's definitely something missing there. We uh, have to talk about this main event because the middleweight division is uh, really going to be set ablaze here. You have Robert Whitaker versus Yoel Romero. And it's kind of weird because... How can I 
it's 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 odd. You know, you have on one side you have a champion who defeated, I believe he defeated Romero for the interim title. Never had the opportunity to face um, Michael Bisbing, who lost the belt to GSP, who then dropped the title, which and then that made Whitaker's belt the real belt, I believe. Then Whitaker was forced out of a fight with Luke Rockhold for the title, and Yoel Romero was inserted. That fight was made into an interim title fight. Then Romero missed weight, making him unable to become the champion, and he goes on to knock out Luke Rockhold, basically putting uh, this belt or this situation out there. I don't even know. Is this is the title of Officially vacant. Let me look real quick. I am not even really sure. Yeah, Whitaker is a uh, Whitaker is the champion. Okay. Okay. Yes, yeah, so Whitaker. Is, Whitaker is the official champion. All right. So no problem. Now this fight is a rematch of their fight from. I believe it was 2017. Yeah, their fight from July of 2017, just about a year ago, which was Whitaker's last fight before he got the um, the health injuries and that massive uh, that nasty scare with uh, staff. So let's really kind of start there and let's talk about this uh, middleweight fight here because what I'm interested the most in is how both of these men are different than one year ago. Romero, since that fight, Romero has fought since when he lost to Whitaker. You know, and the only other fight he took was against Rocco where he won via knockout in the third round. And Luke Thomas at um, MMA Fighting and on the MMA Beat and all that other stuff really talks about how Rockhold, or excuse me, how um, Romero is kind of coming into his own as a competitor and how he's getting to know himself and how he should fight better or how he should fight to better fit his style, per se, each and every outing, which I think is definitely true. Uh, It's... It's definitely, he is fighting in in a more, I don't know if reserved is the right word to say, but he's fighting as if he knows his limitations. He knows that he can't be out there going all explosive the whole time. He knows he can't do that. He knows that he has to fight at a more controlled pace. And one thing Luke has been saying is if you watch how Romero fights in the first round as compared to the second and third, it's almost as if his body is prepared for the rapid explosion that's need for needed for him to get off some of those big strikes that lead to big wins. Look at his knockout over Chris Weidman back at, let's see, that was UFC 205, where he landed that flying knee. It's almost as if, it's as if someone was playing a video game and they like pushed the button as hard as they can and his body immediately rea- reacted. That type of athleticism, it's, it's rare in professional sports, 
but to see him still doing this at this age is amazing. It almost makes you think of Vince Carter in the NBA, half man, half insanity. You think that he, yes, he's slowing down, but his slowing down is almost everyone else's regular speed. And I don't mean everyone else, like regular human beings, not athletes. I'm talking about everyone else within the NBA. The man can still dunk like he's no, nobody's business. If you ever watch some of the warm-up videos of him still throwing it down, the dude could probably win a slam dunk contest today. And the same thing could be said about Romero. He's 41 years old. 41 years old. And he is probably one of the top five athletes regardless of division across the sport. Think about that. The man's 41. He is a former um, Olympic silver medalist and a world champion in freestyle wrestling. The dude can can fucking go. Period. Uh, what's his name? Danny Segura of on MMA Beat today was saying that Romero was doing an interview earlier this week and he was talking about how he wishes he would have gotten his MMA at a younger age um, because now he is slowing down. Could you imagine if he was 25 performing the way he does? If he was 21? Like, look at some of the guys that are are cutting the corner. Look at uh, Max Holloway, Brian Ortega, uh, Sean O'Malley, um, Mackenzie Dern. All these individuals are about, what, 25 and younger? Ortega, maybe 26. Think of someone at that skill level with his type of athleticism, and I mean the the ceiling, the, the ceiling is basically like like Michael Jordan said. I think the ceiling is the roof, or whatever the hell he he said that um, last year, which was a pretty uh, pretty funny meme. But Yoel as a athlete is just substantial, and he's facing a guy in Whitaker who's defeated him before, and is a very tough opponent for any man at all and you have to wonder if this fight is going to look a lot like the first fight that occurred me personally you know you know you guys if you're a long time listeners to this show you know my stance i am not a fan of picking people who have had extended um, time away from the cage i just feel like that yes you can prepare for your fight and you can you know you can train you can um you can do whatever you need to do but being away from the from the fight game especially the way Whitaker has with two serious health situations I think it it hinders you when you return um I mean look at John Jones when he came back when he fought OSP even though he was healthy the whole time and he was training the whole time you saw him look like a better athlete than he was before he left when he returned but he was off in that fight and he didn't look like himself before he turned around and defeated uh daniel cormier to get the belt back he needed to knock some of that rust off i wonder if whitaker is going to be in the same type of situation heading into this fight because he's been away for for a year there's a substantial amount of time where he could not train where he could not compete so you have to wonder if he will be I would know he'll be mentally prepared to face the challenge. The question is whether or not he'll be physically prepared and aware to get back in the cage and get back in at this level. This is a this is an important fight, and I'm really intrigued 
to see which way it's going to go. You know, Schwann is usually my guy to make picks. I'm not the one who usually makes picks. It's funny. We're actually, there's actually a uh, Twitter feed going on right now. Hunter Hornets like, put it out there about what's the worst fight prediction you've ever made. And I had a couple of options that I could pick from. So I'm not going to sit here and make a decision. But I am definitely intrigued in this main event. I think it can kind of go either way. I am um, looking forward to the action and looking at middleweight as a whole. It's, it's kind of wide open. And it's going to be after um, this fight here. Because let's look at the rankings real quick. So we have... Whitaker and Romero, Rockles going up to 25 or 205. You have Chris Weidman. Kelvin Gastelum is an interesting um, opponent for anyone to me. You still have Sosa there. Derek Brunson, David Branch, and Brad Tavares are all making their way up. Brad Tavares is fighting Israel Adesanya later on this year. You have Elias Theodoros kind of making a push. Antonio Carlos Jr., Paulo Costa. You have guys that are making a push who are kind of driving their way up the ladder to see if they can become some interesting contenders. So this fight is important. I think um, Robert Whitaker was saying in an interview today that this is kind of like the start of his reign. He's been he's held onto that belt. He hasn't defended it yet. Now we're going to see what his uh, story um, is going to be. What is his legacy going to be? We want to start having that conversation after uh, tomorrow or Saturday's fight. And then you have Romero. One thing I really want to point out. Look at this guy's run. He, since joining the UFC in 2013, he's defeated Luke Rockhold, former champion, former Strike Force and uh, UFC champion, Chris Weidman, former champion, Jacare Sosa, former champion, Lyoto Machida, former champion, Tim Kennedy, former Strike Force challenger. He's defeated Brad Tavares, who's ranked number eight in the division right now. He's defeated Derek Brunson, who's ranked number six. I mean, he's he's been putting on quite a run that's worth respecting and, and worth recognizing from start to finish. I don't, I don't think you want to kind of kind of bat your eye at that anyway, shape, or form. So this is a pretty big fight for Saturday. I'm looking forward to it. Then you have the co-main event. All right, I want to um, mute my mic for a second here, but you have the co-main event because I have to take a deep breath. So on one side of the docket, we have Rafael Dos Anjos. And I wrote a piece about him on MMARatings.net talking about his position in history. You know, if he wins tomorrow, it will be an interim title. I understand someone someone asterisk put around that. But he will be the fourth man to win two titles in, in two divisions. Let me see. Shawan's trying to join us today. So he'll be the fourth man, I think. Kotor, McGregor, Penn, GSP, the fifth guy to win two belts in two uh, divisions. So you have that. Some are, some are, he'll be the first Brazilian to do so. So some are wondering, is he the best Brazilian to ever um, perform in MMA? My biggest thing with Dos Anjos is if you think back to when this guy started, he started at UFC 91 10 years ago. And this is a guy who struggled quickly in the UFC. People remember him getting his head knocked off uh, facing Jeremy Stevens. That's a highlight that Jeremy Stevens still uses to this day. Whenever they talk about little heathen, 
that uppercut they, they play. Then we remember him getting defeated by Clay Guida and Tyson Griffin, two great wrestlers that were able to, to, to defeat him. Gleason Tebow, another great wrestler, was able to defeat him. Khabib Nurmagomedov wrestled him around the cage too as well. So that's what I'm looking forward to, Schwan, talking about most because on paper, if you look at it from a resume standpoint, Covington is the best wrestler that RDA has, has, has ever faced. You have to wonder how much of a hindrance that will cause RDA at this point. Um, he's talking about it. If you've looked at it, if you've read any of his interviews or looked at any of the videos, he's talking about it in a way that he's not that same fighter that was defeated by Namago Madoff four years ago, but he's still facing someone who is a better takedown artist than he is. So it will be interesting to see if he's prepared for that. But with that in mind, RDA is the better striker, and we've seen his volume be able to overcome guys. Look at what he did to Robbie Lawler when he basically overcame the former champion from start to finish. You can talk about his um, his ACL was messed up. Yes, it was, but even before that point, RDA was putting it on him and putting it on him wholeheartedly throughout that fight. So it would be interesting to see if uh, RDA can do that same thing to Covington. I remember when he did it to Pettis, people were kind of like sitting back and watching like – surprised that he was able to do so. Pettis being the better athlete through and through, the better natural physical athlete, RDA was still able to go in there, put it on him, put it on him, put it on him. So that's exactly what um, you have to wonder if that is going to be the talking point coming in to Saturday. But abilities and in-ring or in-cage acumen and in-cage tactics and strategies aside, you have to talk about Kobe Covington. You have to talk about what he does to get to garner attention outside the cage. Um, one second. So Covington is doing a good job in drawing attention. He's doing a good job in pissing people off. I think David Doyle was talking about. Saturday being a make-or-break situation for him because it's really kind of his time. It's really kind of his time to see if he is going to uh, make it through and get a win because it's kind of like it's, it's the set-off point for him. If he gets a big win, he... I'm not going to say he can he, he can claim himself to be a big star, but that's kind of headed in, in the right step. You, But at the same time, you have to wonder about his stick, shtick and just how, how far is too far. That's kind of the question I have. Yes, I understand what he's trying to do. He's trying to garner attention, draw ratings, get, get on people's nerves, etc., etc., but you almost have to he what he reminds me of is he reminds me of that kid we all know this kid growing up the one who would tell a tell a funny joke or do something funny and then would continue to do the same thing or try to do something else funny try to just just try to get the attention he reminds me of that kid and at some point in time that kid got annoying as fuck kobe Covington is headed towards that towards that destination of being annoying as fuck and i don't mean that I'm not one of these people that say, oh, I don't care about him, I don't care about him, but I want to tell you how much I hate him. No, it's not that. 
my question about it is how far is too far? Because I believe we're going to find out if Covington continues talking and ranting. Like you see him on, I think on MMA fighting, or maybe that was a UFC's Instagram account. He's posting, talking about he's going to win the belt and take it to take it to Donald Trump's office, et cetera, et cetera. He's talking about the Philadelphia Eagles for not going to the White House. He's calling Brazilians filthy animals. I mean, someone made a joke about him a couple years back that if he does fight Tyron Woolley, he's going to show up in Missouri in an All Lives Matter t-shirt or a Blue Lives Matter t-shirt. And some, and the thing is, I wouldn't put that shit past him. It's funny at first, and it might get a chuckle out of you to think about for a quick second, but also, it's borderline fucking inappropriate, and it's just, like, there's a line. He, as Dave Chappelle once put it, Kobe Covington is a habitual line stepper, and we're going to see how many times he's willing to step the line, step over the line to get a rise out of, out of everyone in hopes of getting more views, in hopes of getting a bigger payday. Do I think that is going to pay off? We never know. Um, I think it's totally different than what Conor McGregor was doing. That felt more genuine. Uh, the guys on MMA Beat were comparing Covington to Andy Kaufman. And if you if you're any if you're familiar with pro wrestling or you're, from a history standpoint, you know who Andy Kaufman was. Andy Kaufman was a, a he was a man who used to wrestle women, basically beat up women, and he made like a an, an intergender belt for it was like it was just comedy through and through so he got his ass kicked by Jerry the King Lawler um to say Covington has has a I guess a persona that's akin to that I won't argue that I can again like I always keep saying I see what he's doing I see what he's trying to do I see what he's trying to put forth but at some point in time enough is enough and you have to wonder if we're going to find out how far Covington is willing to go and if that point is going to be too far and that the UFC is really trying to yes they have carved out a strong portion of MMA viewership within the United States within areas like UK Brazil uh, Canada you know the, the Asian market they've carved out areas of that market where viewers will continuously come back to their pocket product but if they are looking to expand into additional markets where there's other minority groups, you have to wonder how far is too far with a guy like Covington saying and doing all the things that he's doing. There has to be a limit to that conversation at some point in time. Hold on one second, guys. There has to be a limit to that conversation at some point in time. You got to wonder how far it's going to go. Give me one second. Let me get Chuan in the chat. So, yes, you have to wonder just how far Covington is willing to go to get a rise out of people. Because if he's willing to go too far, then they may have a conversation, the UFC may have a problem on their hands that they have to deal with, much like you saw with the Andrea uh, KGB Lee situation that occurred over the weekend. We're going to talk about that at a uh, later death time in the show. So, Juan, how you doing there, sir? Good, how about yourself? 
Good man. I'm hearing a lot of static, and you're kind of breaking up a little bit. So let's kind of let's, let's get that squared away. You good there? Yeah. Can you hear me now? Much better. Much more clear. Um, you join us at the perfect timing, man, because I want to hear your breakdown of Kobe Covington versus RDA. Because someone I was talking to somebody about it the other day. RDA has a propensity to get beat by wrestlers. Covington is on paper the best wrestler he's faced at this point in time. Tell me why this fight is going to be different or why it's going to be more of the same for RDA. Um, Covington is a good wrestler, but the thing about it is he's not a guy who just automatically shoots like right out the gate. He, he likes to apply a lot of pressure and throw hands to kind of force you backwards and cut the cage off from you so he can get his hands on you and take you down. The problem with that is the previous problem RDA had is he was more of a Muay Thai striker and what he would do is he would try to pressure you and stand right in front of you because he wanted as soon as you threw something, he wanted to throw something right back equally as hard to keep you from putting your combinations together. But now RDA's his boxing footwork's gotten a little bit better. He's got more of an active jab. His pivots and his turns are a little bit sharper. So what I'm thinking is that the the crisp the crispness of his footwork is gonna allow him to kind of control and navigate the distance a little bit. So the Covington can't be right at the spots that he wants to get in to get the takedown. Even if you're a wrestler and you know because you grapple and you, you had a wrestling background, you can't just run at somebody and get a takedown. I mean, unless you're somebody terrible. But even in most cases, you have to get in a certain position. You can get a takedown or you can get a clean takedown. Taking someone down halfway or being sloppy in the takedown just opens you up for his commission, which is what happened, happened to Covington versus Portland. So Covington's going to be a little hesitant in the first place, but I'm thinking that what RDA is going to do is he's going to try to pressure him. He's going to be trying to pressure him to make him fire his punches. And when he fires the punches, he's going to counter him. So essentially what he's going to do is try to back Covington up and try to make him feel pressured, feel threatened, so that he panic wrestles or so that he comes in with a hard flurry that he can counter him on. Because he needs something to transition that distance so he can get to RDA's hips. And now that RDA has that foot where he can pivot a little bit, he can feint a little bit, he's got that jab and he's throw, and he's, he's able to feign the shots and then follow up with other shots. I think that might disrupt Covington just a little bit, just enough for RDA to start either for RDA to counter the takedown with a big shot or for RDA to be able to kind of get off off the center line a little bit to defend it. And then once he defends it, it becomes like a clinch battle. And if they're going to be in the clinch, it's a 50-50 proposition for RDA or Covington. So when you look at this fight here, I don't know what the, what the odds are. Um, who are you looking at as the winner to come out in this interim title uh, fight on Saturday? Let me look at the odds while you're well, the, that. You there? Yeah, yeah, sorry. I thought you were going to say something else. But the, the biggest thing with Covington is it, we talked about this a little bit before. He doesn't – he hasn't faced anybody – who has really been, I guess, on his level as far as conditioning or physicality or even all-round talent. He's faced guys who are kind of tailor-made for his skill set. And that, that's been what that's why I've been so kind of underwhelmed by what he's done. Even his biggest win is Damian Maya. Damian Maya is a guy who's not a very good wrestler, a guy who's not a very good striker offensively or defensively, and a guy who's had, especially as he's gotten older, has had notorious gas tank issues. So my, my biggest question with Covington is, what are you going to do when a guy isn't, when you're not able to dictate where the fight goes, when you're not able to intimidate guys with your pressure, when you're not able to wear someone down over the length of a fight? Because he's always had that advantage. 
against RDA, he's not going to have that advantage. And I don't know that he has the experience. I don't know that he's been in tough enough spots that if he's put in a bad spot that he can navigate his way through it. RDA has been in with the elite of the 55 division, even, even guys like Clay Guida, Tony Ferguson, guys who can keep safe, guys who are very physically tough, guys who are very savvy because they fought 20 or 30 times. Eddie Alvarez, you know, an all-time creative guy who was very savvy and fought in every major promotion, fought at every level, at every type of tone. So we know that RDA can navigate tough spots. We know that he can keep himself out of trouble. We know he can work his way out of trouble. We don't know any of that with Colby Covington. His whole thing is he basically pressure on you. His footwork is good. His strikes are might be terrible. His footwork is good, but a lot of it is I'm pressuring you. I'm going to wear you down. And as you get tired, that's when I'm going to come on. That's when I get the thing down. That's when I counter you. That's when I get you up against the cage and beat you up. I don't know that he's going to be able to stop hard. I don't know that he's going to be able to manhandle him. And I know for a fact that he can't strike with him on the feet. So the biggest weapon he has is his takedown. If RDA is not concerned about the takedown, but if RDA is able to control the distance and navigate the angles well enough, the takedown is no longer an issue. What's the takedown is no longer an issue. Uh, the fight swings in RDA's favor like 70-30 easily. Because even though Covington is a willing striker, he's not a very good You're breaking up. If Damian Maya is touching you up for a round and a half, you're just not that good on the feet. And everybody saw that fight where Damian Maya was taking it to him for a round and a half. So, like, there's, there's definitely some very factual and key analysis that you brought out there. Kobe Covington is a minus 130 favorite right now, which which doesn't surprise me. Um, but it, it's still worth noting as well. It doesn't really surprise me fully, but it just kind of stands well, out there. If you, look, if you look at it superficially, he's the best wrestler. He's the younger guy. He's an athletic guy. If going by RDA's his losses, you would just have to assume he's going to take him down and control him. But the thing about it is, even when RDA was taken down, the fact of the matter is he was never like he never quit. He never stopped fighting. We have no idea that it, when a guy gets when a guy takes another guy down, a lot of fighters they try to tie up and hold on position. Hopefully the ref will stand up when they kind of give in mentally. But if you have a guy you taken down and he's constantly fighting, whether it's deep reverse or work for a submission, that forces you to work. And if Kobe Covington is first forced to work in the first round and the second round, work to get him position, work to get the takedown, work to keep him down, we don't know that we don't know that Kobe Covington can keep that pace. But a lot of people are just assuming that RDA is the same fighter and he's gonna fall for the same thing. But as I said before, even when he was taken down, he was constantly fighting for position, trying to work for a submission. I don't know that Kobe Covington can maintain a pace versus a guy who's not gonna fade after a round or two of hard contact, hard grappling and hard striking. If you know RDA is not going to be the best condition at the end of the So, superficially, if you wrestle against RDA, that should be an instant You have to take into account the lack of experience. You have to take into account the fact that he's never really been tested. And you have to take into account that he's never faced a guy who can kind of match his face or match his physicality. All those things are things you, you haven't faced before. If you face them, you start to panic, you start to work hard, you, you might overextend yourself, and that leads to the counter, that leads to getting submitted. That least blowing the load early. You've got three rounds to go, and now you've got this guy coming on, and you have nothing left. So while I see why they coming in, and that makes that makes sense on a superficial basic level of strategy and assessment, if you look in the deeper layers of it, there's a lot of reasons for concern. Mainly his defensive striking, mainly the fact he has lost five rounds, and the fact he's never been in a, in a fight and put it in the test. And, cardio or in regards to physicality or athleticism. 
all three of those things are going to happen in this fight. We know that RDA will tough it out. We have no idea what's going to happen. And I, I can't bet on someone who I have no idea how he's going to respond. Okay, true, true, true. Check on your um, on, on your connection too, man, because you're still kind of breaking up and out, in and out. Um, so check on that for me. But as we move on, you know, let's talk about some of the other things going on in this card because this card is kind of stacked from top to bottom, as as I've really been saying and looking at all week. Um, the next fight on the docket is Holly Holm and Mika Anderson here, and this is at featherweight here, and this is an important fight because. Um, Man, look at this. I just saw uh, Brad Tavares is out of his fight against Israel Adesanya. We'll come back to that later. But Holly Holm, Megan Anderson here. Is Holly Holm becoming a gatekeeper? Because Megan Anderson is the woman that a lot of people tabbed as being a big challenge for Chris Cyborg. Then clearly if she defeats Holm, regardless of if it's close or a blowout, she's next in line for uh, a shot at... at um, the current featherweight champion here. What are your thoughts about here, here about this fight? Should we begin looking at home as a gatekeeper? Has she kind of uh, jumped the shark, as as some say? Is her time as a top contender over and done with? Um, I'm not too sure that I see Holly as a gatekeeper. I get why that is. She's like, what, one in her last four fights? But the fact of the matter is, one of the girls who beat her is no longer in this division, Another girl who beat her retired, and the other losses she has are at featherweight. So I, I can't really say that she's she's hated or gatekeeper because she's only lost to elite people for the most part. I mean, except for the, the case of Rendami, uh, which was a favorable style matchup for Jermaine, she hasn't lost anybody who's not top, what top three, top two in their division. I don't know if I can say she's a journey a journey woman at this stage. I understand what they're trying to do because she's still considered elite. Even in in featherweight, because of the lack of talent, she's no worse than maybe top five, maybe top three. Even though she doesn't have, a, I can't think of three other featherweights outside of. I can't think of three other featherweights. I know for a fact are better than Holly Holm right now. So I don't think she's a journey woman. I think what it is is she has name value, and they figure if she beats Anderson, for rematch with Anderson beats her, it basically punches their ticket and establishes her. Or to support, even though we all know better than that. So when you look at, um, if you look at Cyborg and an Anderson fight there, let, let's, let's take a step back before we even get to that conversation yet. Is Anderson the woman that can defeat home and then go on to face Cyborg? On a certain level, she can beat home. We've seen home get beat before. So it's not like there's some riddle that hasn't been figured out. Anderson got mental. She's got good educated footwork. She's gonna be huge, much bigger than Holly Holm. And she she doesn't hit with great Holly Holm's been through a lot of wars in between boxing and mixed martial arts. So you never know when her chin's gonna give out. And like as I said before, Megan Anderson is a the problem she hasn't faced anyone who's even within and Holly Holmes skill set, ten levels of Holly Holmes experience, athleticism. All the girls she has faced have been physically inferior to Holly Holmes. So you're not saying you, but people are asking me is competitive. 
I can see how it'd be competitive based on the style, based on the size. But if you put all things together, Megan Anderson is a striker. How he did with two two Mutchkers in her. Down to Shichenko, world class striker. Cyborg, the best counter puncher in women's and Jermaine world class striker. Anderson has some skills, he doesn't have the depth or the experience necessary to really take Holly Holm out of the game and yeah, Holm to get hit because Holly Holm is hit with her style. Try, try, try. Can you stop for a second real quick because like you're going you're going in and out a little bit too much and I know you're saying some great stuff here. I know you're kind of breaking it down but like you're really kind of going in and out too much like every other word we can't hear you. So um, Let's try to get you uh, squared away for that. Try to get to a place okay. where your signal is, is is strong. But um, as you know, as some of the things I heard yes, you sir. saying is that that home and Anderson. This is this is a matchup that I think it's important for this uh, women's featherweight division, especially with the next episode of the uh, next episode next season of the Ultimate Fighter. One of the divisions that they are featuring is women's featherweight, and they we know that they don't. There isn't a lot of depth in, in this division across the sport, not just within the UFC. Like, I don't, I still, looking at the UFC rankings, I don't even, I still don't think they even have divisional rankings for this division. Yeah, they, they, they don't. And Cyborg has been a champion for more than a year now. So the question is, is Anderson the woman that can kind of challenge Cyborg? Are we looking at her that way? Or, or is that asking for too much of her at this point in her career? You got me now? Yeah, there you go, Sean. All right. Anderson, as I said, Anderson's got skills, but the thing is, is Anderson's fought similar people to Cyborg. Those people pushed Anderson. Those people weren't able to do anything against Cyborg. They're just different levels of athlete. Without Cyborg in division, with it, Anderson and maybe Holly Holm and the rest of them, Anderson would probably be, if not the champion, maybe one or maybe number one, number two contender in the division. But with Cyborg, she just doesn't have the physical tools. She doesn't have the power. She, she didn't have the durability, and quite frankly, she didn't have the level of experience. We've net, we've. I, I just said we don't know much about Kobe Covington in tough spots. We know less than that about Megan Anderson, except for the fact that she got defeated by uh, Yana Kuniskaya, who just got curb stomped by Cyborg like three months ago. So as far as similar opponents, Anderson hasn't been able to do anything that Cyborg hasn't, and we know for a fact Anderson is not the athlete nor the technician nor the um, durab- lacks of durability or physical strength of the cyborg. I really don't think it's a competitive fight at all. The only reason people see it as such is because there's the featherweight division is so thin that anybody who shows any sort of athleticism, any sort of class in their fighting style, instantly is pushed up as an opponent of cyborg. It's got nothing to do with Anderson being so good or so talented. Because she's, in comparison to cyborg, she's neither one of those things. I don't know that she gets past home either, but since the division is so thin, you throw anybody at the king or the queen of the division. Same thing would uh, happen with Mighty Mouse. You see all these guys who didn't deserve title shots getting them. Why? Because there was no one else. The division is so thin. You got to put them in with somebody. So you find whoever you can. You put them in. The guy who's 2-1 and one in the UFC gets a title shot in his fourth fight because they don't have anybody else to go to. And that's essentially the case with Megan Anderson. So they're hoping she beats home to solidify her and make her a legitimate threat. But if she beats, if home beats her, you can still run back the rematch with home because some people saw the home and cyborg fight as being competitive, even though it really was not. Very interesting there. Very interesting there. Right? I'm, I'm, um, 
So let's see, let's see, let's look at some other aspects of this card here. I mean, that brings us to I'm, uh, the Andre Orlovsky uh, tied to a Vasa fight. I'm not too intrigued in talking about. Um, I'm looking at Tuavasa there as the favorite, but what are your thoughts about that fight there? Is it something that kind of is jumping off, off the page for you? Given given that Andre's chin is so shaky, you have to you almost have to put anybody's a favorite. But the thing that the, the only thing that interests me about Andre Arvlaski, and I have to give him some credit, is how many times he's reinvented himself as a heavyweight. I mean, this guy's been around for I, I don't know how many years, and he's gone on these huge losing streaks, and he's slowly been able to transform from one style of fighter at one stage of his career to another style of fighter, another stage of career to another stage of fighter, another stage of career, and no matter what, he's always found some way to keep himself in title talks and to put wins together so when i watch him or any fight he's involved in i'm always interested in it because you see a guy who's not at the peak of his powers but is still still making the necessary adjustments strategically and technically to compete with i guess the best people in the world even though heavyweight's a razor thin division the fact that at his age given his how many fights he's been in and how many times he's lost it's very impressive that he's still able to win fights and he's still getting fights at this level yeah, I mean he's still doing he's doing his damn thing. Um, do you think Tuavasa is someone we can see as a future contender at heavyweight? Is it because of his skill or because the division is so sparse? Uh, Tuavasa's got skill, but I mean to be quite honest, the main reason he has a future is because of the the heavyweight division is so thin. I mean they don't they still don't have a legitimate heavyweight contender. That's why they had to go to with a light heavyweight to get, to fight Stipe because nobody else had enough wins put together. To, legit, to legitimately put them in with a champion. And the division is still thin. They don't have a personality. Basically, he's a young, athletic guy with some power, and that's always going to give you a shot at heavyweight. But as far as his accomplishments and his skills, uh, that's not why he's considered a future prospect in the, in the heavyweight division. It's athleticism and size. So, oh, all right. So, yeah. Um, how far away is Tuavasa from uh, a title shot? Man, he's, I mean, unless something goes terribly wrong, he's at least four to five fights. If he wins them all, four to five fights away from the from a title shot in the best case scenario. True, true, true. Um, next fight we have here, man. We have one for the pro wrestling fans. You know, Mike Jackson, photographer, journalist, 0-1 professional fighter with a kickboxing background. And that's an interesting caveat. Facing former WWE champion Phil CM Punk Brooks. I don't know how they even announce him, whatever it may be, but be prepared because there are going to be some deafening CM Punk chants going on in Chicago, probably before the event even starts. Um, CM Punk, CM Punk, CM Punk. WWE can't even go back to Chicago without acknowledging the fact that people chant his name so much at their shows. So this guy is a draw. He's going to have his he's going to be having his name chanted there. But that is not enough to get him a much needed win here because I feel like this is a different story. This is someone that's not fighting to be a champion. This is not someone that's fighting to go on, on a win streak. He is in his forties. Um he is coming off of years of no excuse me, he's thirty nine coming off of years of professional wrestling damage. He doesn't have the skill set of um, Mike Jackson when it comes to striking. He doesn't really have a skill set when it comes to grappling. If I had to grapple him right now, I'm putting money on myself. 
So, and I have probably about what eight years of jujitsu, ten years of wrestling. If, if I face him at EBI, whatever, I'm getting a win. You can book it right now. But Phil Brooks is still a big draw within the sport, and he's doing it for a different reason. This is more. This is more like of, of a man kind of challenging himself here. Talk to me about this fight here. What are your thoughts about what you see with with Phil Brooks and Mike Jackson and what is what is it that's making this fight such a lightning rod for so many people? Well, the, the reason people are so upset about the fight is they don't feel like he should be on the main card. And I get that because his accomplishments don't say he should be on the main card. But the fact of the matter is, and we talked about this many times, this is this is show business. This is about money. If you don't have somebody drawing in fans and getting putting butts in seats, all the real fighters that we like to support and like to speak well of, those guys don't have jobs. They don't have an event to go to. The UFC needs stars. They need people who push interest. Bill Brooks is the guy who creates interest. So, of course, they're going to have him on the main part of the card. What, what good would it be to be on the undercard and have all these people show up to see him and then all of a sudden have all these people leave because he's already fought in the card? And if you don't think there's people who are coming specifically just to see him fight, you're, you're beyond ridiculous. So as a professional, and a, as a professional, I see how a fighter would be offended it, offended by it. But as a businessman, and all these fighters keep saying, "I'm a businessman. I understand finances. Treat us with respect because we understand money and how it works." If y'all really understand how money works, you're really truly businessmen. There's no way you can be upset because Bill Brooks is on the main card. I guarantee you, um, Robert Whitaker's not upset because he's a champion. He gets a cut of the pie. I guarantee you, Rafael Desanos. And um, Colby Covington aren't upset because whoever wins out of them is going to get a piece of the pie. So they're not upset at all because this this lines their wallet. And to be honest, it helps every fighter on the card because it's drawing interest and it's getting attention from platforms that wouldn't normally get attention from. So I understand it. I, I don't. I get it. I get why people are frustrated, but I don't understand it. I I just can't. I mean, we're in the, we're in a business. Everybody wants to get paid. How do you get paid? putting butts in seats and selling pay-per-views. If all these guys want to get paid and have a platform, they need to show some respect for the guys who are drawing in attention for whatever reason. So, let's, um, let's talk about the legacy of, of this here. Because, personally, I think that if Either way, win, lose, or draw, I think Punk is done from a fighting standpoint. I don't. I. I mean, I said it the first time. It didn't surprise me that he had future fights kind of planned out. But you have to wonder if he gets a win here. Do we think he's actually done? That's the first question. It, if he wins, if I was him, I'd be done. I mean, you had took a, you took a loss, you came back, you got to win. There's not going to be another match uh, more favorable for him than this one and this is a bad matchup for him to be quite honest this is the best he could hope for it's not gonna get any better he's not gonna get any healthier or, any, or really any better as far as competing as a professional this is the best case scenario for him and if he loses on this this platform again he will never be able to fight on this platform again moving forward he'll have to fight in smaller shows which is obviously, obviously not what he's interested in because i can tell you any regional show will be glad to have cm punk fight on their card So, if he loses, come Saturday, what is his legacy? I don't think that it's totally bad. I respect what he's doing. Um, I don't think this is the level for it. But is his legacy a joke? And does him 
taking this fight and being given these fights and these opportunities hurts the UFC's status? Um, I don't think it hurts their status because nobody believes he's really a badass. Like, nobody believes that. Everybody knows that he was wrestling, pro wrestling, and that's not real fighting. And after that fight he had with Mickey Gall, everybody, it's quite clear that Phil Brooks is not, at least for professional fighters or amateur fighters, is not in any sort of competition. Being his age, like you said, and the damage he's been done and the lack of experience he has in martial arts, um, nobody takes it seriously. So it's not a it's not a sham in that regard. In other events, they make it seem like this guy has a chance, and that's what makes the, that, that's what attacks the integrity. Nobody's saying that. So I think he's just going to have the legacy of a, basically a celebrity who fight his hand in mixed martial arts. I think that's essentially what it's going to be. That's going to be his legacy. There's, there's nothing else to it, to be quite honest. Some people are going to look at him as a joke because they're going to say if he really wanted to take an honest stab at it, he could have went to a lower level. But I think most people are just going to say he was a celebrity who took a big swing and either won or didn't win and and they still respect him for that. True. I think he's going to have an interesting level of respect here. In my opinion, in my opinion, I would not be surprised if he goes back to professional wrestling in some form. Not necessarily um, the WWE, but I could see him doing appearances and stuff like that because he actually is doing an appearance coming up for uh, an event. So I would not sleep on that. Uh, next yeah. fight. He's a businessman. Business he understands the game, and he's setting himself up. So you know, you know him, even Michael Jackson, the guy who took the fight, He's a businessman, so you can see how these guys are taking advantage of the situation. I, I know their their motives, are, I think, are genuine, but that doesn't overshadow the business. They're going to make sure they're taking care of it and create some opportunities for themselves moving forward. So that's the difference between the fighters who say they're businessmen and people who actually understand business and take care of their business. You see that right there. Yeah, I definitely think that um, he's going to have some opportunities after this, and I'm looking forward to kind of seeing what's next for him. Alistair Overeem, Curtis Blades. Again, same question as I had with Holly Holm. Is, has Overeem hit gatekeeper status? Is Blades trying to break through here? Or uh, is this too much too soon for uh, Curtis? I, I honestly think, looking at the fight on paper, I'm going to say the same thing I said about Nganu. Based off actual technical skills, experience, and even though he's lost his step, physical ability and savvy, this should be a win for Overeem. He's got the better stand-up. He's fought the better level of competition. He's faced guys who can grapple and guys who can wrestle. He's faced guys who can punch hard. He's faced better strikers and better grapplers than Blade. The question is, will he show that veteran poise and that veteran savvy in the fight? If he does, it should be a competitive but fairly, fairly one-sided fight in favor of Overeem. The biggest issue with Overeem is always is what happens when he gets hit and what happens when real pressure and physicality is put on him. Because not just has his chin always seems suspect, his ability to recover has gotten worse as he's gotten older, which is pretty normal. But the question is, if and when he, he gets taken down harder, he takes a couple shots from Blade, will he be able to work his way out of a bad spot, put himself back in a good spot, and, and regain control of the fight? Recently in fights, once he's lost control of the fight, he hasn't been able to regain it. In all the fights he's won, he's essentially regained, he's essentially had control of the fight from beginning to end. And every time he's been in, tough, in, in a tough spot, he's kind of folded. Um, I still think Blades is a little one-dimensional. Um, I know he, he's, he's a smart fighter. I know he's physical, physically tough, 
But I think I'm going to lean on the side of the more experienced and the more balanced fighter and say that Overeem uh, wins by decision. Like I said, Blades is tough. Blades is um, very physical, and he's got a good skill set. But the fact of the matter is, he was almost had by Mark Hunt early. And had that been Alistair Overeem in that same position, I think Overeem would have finished. I don't, I don't, Overeem's a much more multifaceted fighter than Mark Hunt. You're not just going to take him down. You're not just going to back him up. You're not just going to overwhelm him with a dab and one-two and take him to a takedown. I think that's going to work. Overeem's been around the block with the best guys in the world for the past 10, 15 years. He's well beyond that sort of thing. For Blades to win this, he's going to have to take some to get some. And if he can take it, he should be able to put Overeem in a bad spot. And Overeem should hold as he's known to do. But I think Overeem's going to make him work to put him in any sort of spot at all. And I think that work rate and Overeem's footwork and his his kind of pot shot striking nowadays is going to be the difference. So he can win a decision or possibly stop late. So let me ask you a question in here. It, first off with Overeem, um, is he ever going to get that elusive UFC, UFC title? Honestly, I, I don't think so. At this stage, he... If he was a little bit younger, I might say so, but his, his athleticism is already starting to slip. And even though he's taking a more defensive aspect to his striking, the fact of the matter is his footwork isn't really, really good when he's really, really pressured. He'll turn his back and run against a guy who can take some heat and put some pressure on him. And when he's facing guys who are really big punchers, he tends to get a little skittish and gun shy, which you don't think a 45 veteran would do, but he does that. And as, as we stated before, his ability to recover from take shots isn't great. His ability to recover from shots isn't great either. If we're just pulling off the skills and experience, I would say, yeah, at some point he'll get his hands on that belt. But the fact of the matter is, with diminishing physical athleticism and diminishing uh, recuperative abilities and durability, I don't, I don't think he, he, get, he gets, he might get close, but I don't think he ever gets the belt. I mean, even though I picked him, there's a very good chance that Wade uh, takes take him out as well. He just you just can't take punishment very well anymore. And in the fight business, you have to be able to take some kind of punishment to win. You just can't get around that. It's like being a wide receiver who, who doesn't like getting hit. But you can't really be a wide receiver in the NFL because you're going to get hit and hit often. Yeah, very true. You're going to get hit. You're going to get hit often. Um, next, I mean, there's so many fights to talk about on, on this card, man. We can't, we can't not talk about Claudia Gadelia and Carla Esparza. Uh, this is a big. I think this is a perfectly paired fight too, as well because it keeps two top contenders, one a two-time ch- title challenger, the other being a former champion. It keeps them active. It keeps them active in an, in an important fight, and it keeps them away from um, killing off any other upcoming contenders, which I think both of these women could. Talk to me about that, and also what you expect from this fight on Saturday. Uh, I would. It, like you said, it is very well matched because they're they're of a similar caliber as far as their standing and and, and their placement in the division. Um, so the the thing about it is, Esparza, Esparza, even though she can't, Esparza can afford to lose this fight. A lot of people are expecting her to lose this fight. She's facing a better athlete, a better grappler, a better wrestler, and a better striker. So her losing this fight wouldn't surprise anybody. And she's coming off of what, a two, three fight win streak. So. A loss to Claudia Gadelia doesn't set her back a whole lot. There's still a lot of other options she has. Slowly works her way back into contention. Claudia Gadelia, on the other hand, can't afford to lose this fight. She lost to Justin Andrade, and it was a good fight. But towards the end, Justin Andrade was just laying the wood to her, and it began to get very one-sided. If she loses to Carlos Esparza, 
Um, it's a huge hit to any chance he has of getting another title shot. I'm, I'm thinking it moves her down three, four, five spots minimum. And essentially takes her about two to three, if not three to four fights away from the title. I mean, in fact, I think if she loses, she might have to consider moving up to flyweight just because her options at, at um, Broadway would be so limited. It's going to be such a long road back unless a bunch of stuff goes wrong for other fighters. Uh, the actual fight, based on paper, it's very one-sided towards Claudia Gadelia. As I said, she's a better grappler. She's a better wrestler. She's a better striker. Uh, I actually wrote an article about this. The biggest thing Carlos Sparks is going to have to do is not attack her on the technical level, but attack her on a strategical level strategical and conditioning level. Because even though Claudia is a very good fighter, she's never really been able to fight at a pace. Basically what she does is she takes control of the fight, scares you with her power, is walking you down, takes you down, beats you up, takes you down, submits you, and just works you over for the length of a fight for a decision win. Carla Sparza has essentially got to force her to fight at every level. She's got to engage her at every level. Punches, kicks, takedown attempts. If she gets taken down, she's gotta she's gotta fight to sweep, fight to reverse fight for submissions, anything she can to force Claudia out of her, out of the pace she wants to fight in. Because once Claudia starts getting outside of that pace, even if she's winning the fight, beating up Carlos Sparza, the fact of the matter is she's cutting into her own gas tank, which is notoriously suspect, when having to work all full, the full five minutes of the round. So what Sparza's got to do is put her in positions where she has to work. She's got to use her footwork, move around the cage, force Fidelia to chase her. She's got to start actively throwing shots when Gedalia lands, she's got to punch her right back. When Gedalia starts putting combinations together, she'll force her against the cage and knock her out, or she'll take her down and finish it. So she's basically, she can't allow Gedalia to get any momentum on her side. She can't put four or five punches together, she can't let that happen. She can't let Gedalia push into the fence and corner her, she can't let that happen. She has to initiate punches and takedowns, but for no other reason to make Gedalia work, she has to defend them and make her work trying to punish as far as for attempting to take down. The main goal is it make Gedalia work for every single thing she has. And even though Gedalia is a much better athlete, if she makes her work and provide that first round or those first two minutes, Gedalia will flow. And once she flows, the athleticism is going to go a little bit, the technique's going to go a little bit, and then as far as we can slowly start chipping away and see if she can turn the fight in her favor. Essentially, she's got to do a version of what she did with Cynthia Calvillo. The only difference is Cynthia Calvillo is a classic low Gedalia as far as athleticism and experience. So essentially what she did with Gedalia is what she's got to attempt to do versus Gedalia to win this fight. But it is an uphill battle and you have to play with Gedalia. She's just a better class of fighter. True that, true that. Um, same question that we saw with Overeem here. Sparza being a one-time champion, do either one of these women get the belt back? Get the belt or get the belt back? If Sparza, if Sparza beats beats um Gedalia, there's a good chance she might get a fight with Rosnam Yunus because Andrade will be ahead of her as far as a fighter, but you have a you have a back you have a backstory between Rose and um and Esparza because Esparza beat her pretty one sidedly and finished her. Finished her and she looked good doing it. And they were in the house, the tough house together. She finished her for her first championship. And at one point Esparza was the number one straw weight in the world or considered it by most people, her and Jessica Aguilar. So if she beats Gedalia, there's not much of a, a better win in division outside of Andrade. But even she would leapfrog Andrade is that three fights in a row, she beat the number three girl in division, and she's already got a win over the champion. That's the situation that the UFC loves. As far as Gedalia, if she beats Esparza, I still say she's two fights away from the title. 
Like she has to fight Andrade, Death and Tiger, but it's a really tough fight. Otherwise, she has to be two or three other highly ranked strawweights to be in position to get the road. Unless, as I said before, someone gets injured or something happens. I don't think Cadelia has a big enough fan base, nor do I think people a win over Esparza is going to do enough to excite people to want to see that fight. They're, they're going to have to see more. I mean, she, she might have to fight Joanna again to get a shot at Rose. True, true. I'm not going to disagree with you that. All right, let's keep it moving, man, because we got quite a bit to talk about here. Um, I don't want to hit on too much else. We'll talk about it I kind of in, in a group other than this Joseph Benavidez-Sergio Pettis fight. Our good friend and colleague Adam Martin wrote about this fight being buried on Fight Pass, uh, and he called it an error in UFC ways. I'm not sure if I totally agree with that because I think that this um, is an opportunity for it to draw some attention, um, and it's all about kind of like slot placement. But what are your thoughts about this fight from a stylistic matchup? I think this is like the second or third time they tried to make this fight here. Uh, again, it's kind of similar to what we saw with the Gedalia Esparza fight, where it's good ma- matchmaking. Benavidez losing to the champion twice. Pettis has kind of struggled to get there, dropping a fight to Henry Sahito along the way. What are your thoughts about this fight here, and, and, and how are you breaking it down? It's very good matchmaking. Basically, Pettis is trying. Pettis and Benavides are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to jump the line. Benavides beats Pettis. He's on win streak. He can say, "I beat this guy who's won what five out four out of his last five. If Pettis beats him, he can say, "I beat this guy who's on a seven fight win streak and is challenged for the title multiple times." So that should jump me ahead. So basically, they're trying to jump the line by fighting one another. As far as stylistically, in a certain way, this fight reminds me of the Esparza Gadelia fight. Because Benavides is a more—he's a far more experienced guy. He's a more durable guy. He's got—he's got more power. He's a better athlete. He's a better wrestler. I wouldn't say he's a more diverse striker, but as far as how effective he's been with his striking and the and the layers and the damage he can do with it, he might in fact be the better striker than Sergio Pettis as well. So it's going to come down to can Sergio a how healthy is Benavides? Is he 100% back? How sharp can he be? And B is Sergio able to enact a strategy that can allow him to to basically take over the fight, to, to neutralize Benavides' advantages of physicality and explosiveness. Basically, he's going to have to stick and move, and he's going to have to, I would say, he's going to have to watch each other and counter the with the Gedalia fight. You can't let Benavides start putting combinations together. I know for a fact Benavides can take credit for power. Guys, the lesser chin. I also know for a fact Pettis cannot handle Joseph Joseph Benavides' power. Benavides can knock him out. Benavides can manhandle him. Benavides can out wrestle him. What Pettis can have to do is basically stick and move, try to defend Benavides a little bit, walk him into counter, and if he can walk him into counter, get the body, kind of get the legs a little bit, then he can back him up and kind of hurt himself and basically. Taking him apart on the feet, jab with with the kick to the bottom. But if he connects Benavides off, he can't exhaust him. Benavides should run him over. And Pettis is not very good when he's on the back foot. When he's forced on the back foot, he's not very good in exchanges with heavy hitters. And he has a bad penchant for kind of admiring his work a little bit. And against a guy who fits like Benavides, who's dynamic as Benavides, helpless. That's bad. That's a very bad recipe. So essentially, it's going to come down to 
athleticism and his team's strategy and ability to adjust mid-round or in between rounds. And it's going to come down to just benefits, Benavidez's physicality, athleticism, and his pedigree as a fighter. As I said before, he hasn't been active, so it would be, it would be hard for me to pick him. And the fact of the matter is, based on two days of where they've been in the sport, it's hard not to pick Benavidez, even though he should be on the decline. He should still be a better caliber, at least a level, a level or two higher than Pettis right now. Pettis, I think, is as good as he's going to get, and he still lacks the physical tools to really turn the fight around or dominate a fight physically. He's not his brother. He doesn't have those physical tools. So if Benavidez is still a legit guy who's not completely shot, I don't see how he loses his fight. Interesting breakdown there, man. Interesting breakdown. Um, it's kind of funny, you know, we're kind of having this trend here. Do you think either one of these guys will ever be champion, flyweight champion? If Benavidez wins, I don't know that he'll be flyweight champion because he, he hasn't found a way to beat Johnson yet. I mean, I guess it always could happen, but he, he should get a title shot. He was on a, like a six or seven fight win streak. He would have beat a top five ranked guy and that fight even though it's not super it wouldn't be super popular just like the fight between Pettis and Benavides isn't super popular it would be the most interesting fight to make at this stage in the division I mean who else we got Cejudo versus Johnson nobody really wants to see that uh, nobody wants to really see Johnson versus Pettis either um, so I think Benavides has a chance to at least challenge for the title at least once more if he can win this fight and, and he's going to have to because I don't think his career is going to last three, four more years at this level. So as far as Pettis, I don't know that he's got enough to get past the elite guys who will be in his way on the way to a title shot. I don't know that he could be, I don't know that he can beat Benavidez. I don't know that he could still beat Cejudo. I don't know that he can beat Demetrius Johnson. And there's a couple other guys who would be a 50-50 bet with him. He's just not a good enough athlete as far as his closeness and his power. And he, he's not the most durable guy. You can put him in bad spots very easily, and you can hurt him on the feet. You can land one shot and turn it all around on him because he's just not—he's not as durable as Anthony. Anthony's a much better athlete, much bigger hitter, much better, much more, much more durable guy. And Pettis doesn't have Sergio does not have any of those things to lean on. He basically gets by on experience, skill, and good game planning, and that's great against a certain caliber of fighter. But just like when you saw against Cejudo. With a certain caliber of fighter, even with a certain caliber of fighter, all his limitations start to go. And no matter how well prepared he is and how diverse he is, he's able to overcome those limitations with good coaches. It, it's the same thing as NFL. You know, NFL, you could have a, a lesser team. At some point, talent rises to the top. You can team somebody, you can direct somebody, but if you don't have the horses, you can't get the win. True, man. That's some, that's some um, key. Uh analysis there I, i'm i'm intrigued in this fight as well too man as i mentioned you know this card from top to bottom is worth watching i saw someone on twitter talking about this fight isn't worth the money totally disagree with them if you are a fight fan oh, sit yeah. down watch this fight one, from start more to finish. one more thing i wanted to say having it on the prelims it's going to be on the prelims right uh the benavidez pettis fight is on fight pass i believe oh wow okay it might, i think, I think it was on prelims I think it's on Fight Pass. If it's on, I can I can see why it'd be on prelims because a lot of people watch the prelims, and Benavides is a familiar name, Pettis is a familiar name. So if it's an exciting fight, and the next challenger comes from that fight, you would get a lot of coverage and a lot of attention from it. So being on prelims makes sense to me. Being on Fight Pass, uh, I'm not too sure about that one. Now that's confusing me. Prelims I get on Fox or whatever or FS1 that makes some sense to me. On Fight Pass, 
nah, man, I, I don't get that at all. That, 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 they lost me on that one. Yeah, I believe it is on uh, Fight Pass, my good man. So before we move on, like, let's talk about that main event from last Friday where um, we got, we saw a finish come in quick fashion, 33 seconds. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, one hit, one hit Mar- kill. Yeah, Marais and, um, what was his name, Rivera? Yep. Yeah, um, I want to say I was shocked by that, but I, I just really wasn't. I never bought into Jimmy Rivera. We talked about multiple fights. He's he's planning to be in, or he he wants to be in, and every time we talked about the fights, the first thing I've said is he's great on his initial scouting. If you're gonna fight the way you fought the past ten years, five years, two years, or the last two or three fights, he's gonna have you scouted. He's gonna have counters. He's gonna be able to break you down, take you down, either take you out or build such a lead that you're gonna have to knock him out to win the fight. But if you have any new wrinkles, if you have any new tricks, if you figured him out and what he's trying to do. He's got no ability to adjust. If you've actually taken the time to break down his game, read his counters, and figure him out, that's what's going to happen. He was fighting. He was fighting Marais. He came out there. He was trying to find his range. He overextended with his jab. And basically, he just got kicked in the head. He overextended, and he kind of dipped a little bit on the jab, and the guy just came right over and kicked him in the head. He was wide open. He was leaning in. He was over because of Marai's footwork and how he's taking little hop steps in and out. And once Marai saw him reach, he just blasted him. If he would have sat down on the jab and just shot it out and brought it right back, he would have been fine. Because the arm would have been for the kick. The fact for it was set him up You're breaking up there, man. Breaking the sword. Oh, I'm sorry. He basically, if he just wouldn't have reached with it, he would have been all right. If he'd have been feigning with the jab and jabbing his way in, like behind multiple jabs, he would have been fine. But he reached with his jab. He reached and he deep dipped in, and that's when Marais caught him with the kick. And there was nothing he could have done about it, given that he was reaching for it. He couldn't. He couldn't manage the distance. He couldn't gauge the distance. So we overextended trying to get to Marais, and Marais just countered him. And basically, I mean, it's the same weakness that's always been there. He's going to scout you. He, he's looking for certain things. And if you figure out what he's looking for, you'll blow him out every single time because he's not a guy who can make a quick adjustment. He's not a guy who has wrinkles in his game. There's plan is There's just toughness. If plan A doesn't work, he's leaning on toughness and athleticism to come through it. This time, toughness and athleticism. Okay, okay. Um... Man, I had some other topics that I wanted to talk about, but I really feel like we went through a full show this week. We can come back to some of those news items that we had from uh, the rest of last week. But, man, let people know what you're working on. Yo. You did a great piece on Gadelia and Esparza heading into this weekend. Talk, tell us where you can find some more of your work for this week. Uh, that was the only thing I did. It's I, I like doing these articles but you have to look at tape so closely <laughs> it's you have to watch it to like because a lot of people look at this technique if you look at a lot of analysts they want to give you a decision i want to tell you how the fight could go because that's where the actual and we talked about this before how the actual analysts do it the real analysts the guys that respect patrick wyman Conan rebush dan tom other people you have to be able to tell people how the fight could or would go not just who would win that's easy anybody can make a pick and explain it how 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 could the fight go in your favor? How could the fight go against your favor? And a lot of people are kind of technique Nazis, 
He used this technique. He used this kick and he used this sweep and he used this guard. That's great. There's a place for that. I value that. I'm not the greatest technique technique person, so I'm not downplaying that. Well, what I look at is kind of like patterns in the guy's fighting style, patterns in the person's habits. That's why I always say don't attack the technique. Attack the person's character. Someone who wants to brawl is going to be there to get countered all day because he wants to go first, but he's going to brawl. A guy who wants to counter isn't going to throw enough volume to beat you because he's always looking for that clean shot. So when I watch these these videos, I have to really get a feel for their personality, feel for their habits, a feel for how they respond in different situations. Not technically, but how they physically and mentally respond through their body language and their actions. So it requires a lot of film watch to really get a, a full grasp on what they're doing so that I can give analysis that's a little bit different than what everybody else is giving. Um, so that was the only thing I did this week. Sorry for the long explanation. I just wanted people to kind of get a better understanding of how I approach it. But um, in the next week, uh, I'll be having, I was going to do something on Tavares' fight. Obviously, that's not going to happen. So Yeah, I, I, know, just, I, just, I just saved you some work there. Yeah, I saved you some time. I've, I've had a couple ones. I've actually done them, sent them in, get, got them published. And, oh, since that with injury. Well, that's just great. I just wasted my time for anything. But um, I, I don't know there. what I'll be doing. But I will have some parts, especially covering women's mixed martial arts. Because MMA ratings podcast, MMA ratings and myself are one of the few who give women's mixed martial arts in-depth, comprehensive analysis. I'm challenging you to go to other sites. Not just the big the John and the clear. Look how they bring fights. Come to our site. Look at some of my work. Even look at some of my work on other sites. Look at the depth and detail that I go in for girls. Second fight, Christine Williams, girls throwing champions like Carla Sparza, girls like Felice Herrick. I cover all different levels, not just the name, not just the popular people, not just the champion respect and attention to detail that all the male fighters get on every single card. Watch the difference between the analysis for the male fighters at the bottom and the analysis for the women fighters top to the bottom. You will see a drop-off in quality, detail, and analysis, and level of analysis, except, except when Schwann Humes is writing that article. You will see the same, if not better, analysis for any female fighter compared to any male fight, big or small. Good, good, good thoughts there, man. As always, you know, I'm steady at the grind. Got a bunch of stuff coming out, so just keep, um, just keep everything going. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of content, but this is, this is a pretty interesting time. In in I the sport, fully man. expect to work with how much you work. Say it again. I I had a, a guy at a job was delivering something and he sounded like you and I was like, found some job where he's down in Texas right now and it wasn't you and I was like I fully expected it to be you because you're working everywhere you're everywhere you're all over the world you're all over the United States you're always doing something so I fully expect to one day go into some business and see you there and be like what are you doing in Texas dude, go home. I mean, hey, I'm surprised I haven't been called out there for something yet. Turn your phone off. Turn your social media. I see you on social media. We got problems, homie. Go to sleep. Get some rest. I'm, I'm going to try one of these days, but not tonight, probably. My, my kids told me to tell you that. They're like, hey, he always doing something. Tell him to go to sleep. Like, I keep telling him, he don't listen to me. You can't tell this man nothing. He don't listen to nothing I say. But I'm going to say it. Y'all all heard me say it on the radio, on podcast. Y'all heard me say it. You see him on social media, tell him, go to sleep, get some rest. You're working too hard, man. Leave something for some of us to do. 
one of these days, maybe one of these days, we'll see. But as always, man, thank you for joining the show. I appreciate having you on. Um, and we'll be back to talk uh, next. Well, actually, no, we won't be back to talk next week. I'm um, going to be on a actual vacation. We'll talk more about that later on in the week. But next week, we will not be having a show. We'll be back the week after that. Okay. Hey, that's all I want to hear. Vacation, magic word. We cool now. Ah, no problem. Cool. Take that in mind, man. Thanks, everybody. Have I a great time.